I want to add my welcome to each and every one of you, whether you're watching online, whether you're here on the church's premises, whether you're downstairs watching through a screen, or whether you're able to be with us to go on this special journey, whether it's your first time at Peachtree or experiencing the joy of what it means to be a part of this family of faith, or whether you've been with us for decades. We give thanks to God for you and for the chance that we have to do something special in our moment in time. And the season that we're focused on is uh, an ancient letter, but we don't just believe that it's an ancient bit of correspondence. We believe that there's something special. In fact, what Paul refers to, what he is Uh, writing about is what is known as the gospel, and that he defines the gospel as not just as an idea, but as it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the purpose of why he's writing, so that this power could come to that community and to us as well. And so we've given you an outline for what it means to how to not get lost in the 16 chapters that is the book of Romans. And we've talked about these four things, what a mess, what a gift, what a God, and what a difference. And these are kind of the four major themes or the four major movements of the symphony that is this letter to the church at Rome. And as we've been going through this chapter by chapter, have been very patient in bearing with us as we talk about what a mess we have made of things. And that Paul has used a variety of different imagery and terms in order to be able to describe that. That he's talked about the concept of unrighteousness, which I gave you the very technical definition of not okayness. And then we've talked about how we cannot Uh, make our lives, engineer our lives to work because of self-righteousness or judgmentalism. And then the third chapter talks about sinfulness. And we talked about sin is not just the kind of thing that you do. It might be something that happens to you. It is a weight that we are often under. Sin is falling short and that we don't even live up to our own expectations, much less God's. And so we talked about how kind of Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, and that the what a mess section of Romans can be kind of described as when your life isn't working. What is it that makes us out of alignment with the way that God has designed us to be able to live as individuals as well as to be able to live in community? And then last week in Romans chapter 3, I shared how this was kind of the most important verse here, that there's no distinction For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we kind of stopped there. Because what's about to pick up in chapter 4 is this next part that we are justified by His grace as a gift. So it is time for us to pick up a really big, heavy theological term and for me to help to be able to see if we can carry that word together. It is a word that repeats over and over and over again in the book of Romans and throughout all of Paul's writing. It is the word justification. Say justification. I remember being in seminary and someone describing justification as your life just as if you had never sinned in the first place. Or the way that we attempt to explain or rationalize or to be able to figure out why we're here or why we exist. So if I was to ask you the question, 
What justifies your existence? How would you respond to that question? There's a lot of different things that we might do to be able to defend or to explain why we exist. Here are a couple of common ones. What I do, in other words, my accomplishments or how good I am to a particular standard. How I look, in other words, what my image is or my identity. What I avoid, in other words, am I a part of something that is clean unlike that other group of people or whom I'm with. What you associate with, your tribe, your team. If you were to go throughout the course of your day, you would see constantly today that we are justifying ourselves in all of these different ways. Now, last week I introduced you to an atheist scholar by the name of Jonathan Haidt who is in the field of moral psychology. And as an atheist, he basically set out in moral psychology to talk about how, you know, he wanted to debunk that religion was really necessary. And what he ended up discovering when he was doing cross-cultural analysis of the way that our minds really work, what he discovered is it doesn't matter what society you grew up in, all of us are trying to figure out how to justify ourselves. And so the way that he put it is like this. Our moral thinking is much more like a politician searching for votes than a scientist searching for truth. Our in-house press secretary automatically justifies everything. We can believe almost anything that supports our team. Self-justification binds us together but blinds us to the truth. Do you think this paragraph might be important before we head into another election cycle? We have an incredible capacity to rationalize and to justify what we think, the way we live, how we act, what we wear, who we're with. And so the question isn't, Do you try to justify yourself? The question only is, what is the criteria or the standard or the substance of what your justification is? Justification is that process by which you tell yourself that you're okay. And so let's go back to this verse in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by what? His grace as a gift. The only proper justification The only firm ground on which to stand that's not what I do, what I avoid, what I wear, how I look, or who you're with, is that your justification in mind is the grace of God that was given to each and every one of us as a gift. 
And so chapter 4, as we turn from mess to gift, from sin to grace, chapter 4 gets us into justification. And sometimes you have to bounce around a chapter in order to kind of explain all the different parts. Today, as I was doing my study this last week, I realized that if I explain one verse to you, I think you'll understand the whole rest of the chapter. And it's not just a verse that Paul came up with, because it's a verse that he's actually quoting something that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And that this is the one thing that you and I really need to know that helps to understand everything else that happens in this chapter. And I'd love for you to say this verse with me one time. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. If you understand this, you will understand justification, and you'll understand all the rest of chapter 4. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's put it like this. It's first, let's talk about Abraham. Now let's imagine for a moment that you're a part of a jazz club. And in the midst of this jazz club, you are arguing over the origins of jazz and how it all came about. And while you're in the middle of your jazz club, one of your friends says, let's settle this argument and by some magical and mystical properties this guy, Louis Armstrong, is able to walk into your jazz club and explain to you the origins of jazz. Or let's say you're in a book club and you're reading the famous Harry Potter series. And while you're in the middle of that Harry Potter series, you're having a disagreement over something in terms of whether it's this or that character and trying to understand something. And you have a friend that by some magical or mystical properties is able to pay J.K. Rowling enough money to come to your book club. And she walks in the door, she's going to be able to settle that disagreement. Or let's imagine for a moment in another hypothetical that you're in a pub and you're arguing about college football. And whether last team's national championship team was better than the previous year's national championship team, and you have a friend that by some huge gift given to the UGA Foundation brings in none other than Kirby Smart to be able to settle the disagreement about which team was better. Or let's say you're in school and you're studying the Revolutionary War, and you and your professor are having a disagreement over the origins of this country's beginnings. And somehow, somebody is able to march George Washington into your classroom, and he's able to answer that question for you. Are you starting to pick up the trend of what I'm trying to share with you? There is a disagreement in the Church of Rome between the Jews and between those who want to follow Jesus Christ who were not first Jewish. And so while all of them share the common understanding of believing in Jesus, they have many disagreements. And Paul needs to settle some of these disagreements. And he says, I call as my first witness Abraham of Ur. And Abraham enters into the letter. Father Abraham, 
from whom all of these things begin. And Abraham is about to settle the score and to clarify everything for them that they need to know in regards to justification. So one of the primary issues, and I promised you last week that we were going to talk about this week, but I promise you I don't have any pictures, (laughs) is that we were going to have to talk about chapter 2 and chapter 4, bring up the subject of circumcision. And as we bring up this subject, the primary issue in the early church surrounding this was whether or not someone had to become Jewish first in order to become a Christian, or could someone be a Gentile and could become a Christian without having to go through the old covenant, the old promises. And as Paul is explaining this, as he's done in many of his letters, He wants us to understand the nature of circumcision and how it was given to Abraham to begin with. So recall the story. It's a beautiful night. The stars are as many as you could count. And Abraham is looking up at the stars. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham is amazed. God, this is incredible. And God says to Abraham, there's only one thing that I'm going to need you to do. And that's when God gives Abraham circumcision. And Abraham says, Noah got the rainbow, can we work something else out? (laughs) What happens with regards to this is that we understand that God in this verse, in chapter 15, reckoned and gave these things to Abraham first before circumcision was given. In other words, circumcision is the symbol of the response to what God has done. It's not the origin of what God has done. I mean, let's imagine with these symbols here. Can you imagine one spouse saying to the other, oh no, you can't do that. I have your ring. The ring is meaningful But the ring is purely a symbol of the promise of what has previously already been given and had. Can you imagine if we had communion on a Sunday morning and when we had communion we said, by the way, um, this communion is what makes you a Christian. No, 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 no. The communion is a joyful response to what God has already done for us. And so Paul, in his argument in chapter 4, says, make sure you don't get this order out of alignment. And he calls in Abraham as his first witness because God gave to Abraham through faith the gift of the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars before he gave him the symbol of what that means. And so for the first Understanding of this is that we have in this verse that it was Abraham who was called as a witness. And then it says that Abraham believed God. 
One of the biggest misunderstandings that I see in church today is the understanding of what this word means, faith. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to a set of ideas. Faith is trust, confidence, relying on someone or something. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Back when we lived in San Antonio, Texas, our youngs were, our, our girls, our girls were, our youngins, our younglings were really young. They were only like two and four years old. And we would buy annual passes when we lived in San Antonio to go to SeaWorld. And so we would get the double jogger out, and we would go to SeaWorld, and we would go see all of the amazing shows and the rides of what the little kids would do. And so if you've ever been to SeaWorld, you know it's like the Georgia Aquarium on steroids. It is amazing to see what they have. And that the kind of the signature show, which is also filled with controversy, but the signature show has to do with giant 7,000-plus-pound killer whales that fly through the air. And so we've got a two-year-old, we've got a four-year-old, we've got them in the lap, we're just outside the splash zone, and on this one particular occasion, we have a new babysitter that we have brought with us that's going to be a live-in nanny for the summer. And she was a seminary intern who was also living with us. And so she's with us. We buy her a ticket to be able to come with us to go to SeaWorld. And the show for Shamu, the killer whale, is going on. And the show is themed with all the music and with all the lights and all the whales dancing around in the air. It's called Believe. And so the song is singing, Believe! And whales go in the air, splash, and my kids are going, yeah! Believe! And there's all of this stuff that's going on and lights and sounds and amazing stunts and the lights come back on and everybody stands and cheers and we stand and cheer and we got our kids, seminary interns sitting down. And we're like, how are you not impressed by this? And she goes, believe? Believe in what? A killer whale? <laughs> this is why you don't take seminary students anywhere. But she was absolutely right. Believe in what? There always has to be an object of belief, an object of faith. You can't just have faith. You have to have faith in something or someone. That is what faith is. God promised Abraham when he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, that he would be the father of nations. When God made that promise, it was a long time from that promise to fulfillment, and it required Abraham to wait and to trust on that promise. Max Lucado puts it this way. Everything was gone. No youth, no vigor, no strength. They get up and go, and got up and gone. All old Abe and Sarah had was a social security check and a promise from heaven. But Abraham decided to trust the promise rather than a focus on the problems. As a result, the Medicare couple were the first to bring a crib into the nursing home. 
Did you notice that? Abraham had a choice to make. He could focus on the promise or on the problems. And Abraham believed God. And what happened as a result is what happens next. This is the most technical part of justification. And it was credited or it was counted or it was reckoned to him. This is an accounting term. Something moves from one account into another. A couple in a previous congregation were married and desperately wanted to have a child. They were thrilled when they discovered that they were pregnant. They were very nervous when they discovered that something was wrong in the midst of the pregnancy. They were terrified when they were called to the hospital to have to deal with it. It was a long journey of medical care after another birth and a very short but expensive life. They're heartbroken. They're shattered. It wasn't just the loss of a dream. It was the loss of a soul, a person to them. And to add insult to injury, because they were a very modest means, and because of the nature of the complication of their insurance, which wasn't very good, every single month for about a year, they were having to make a payment for the medical care that they had received for which they were grateful, but was like salt in the wound every single month. And I watched this family suffer. And another family in the church who had more resources at their disposal came to me. And they said, we can't do everything that we would like to do for this couple, but we can do this. And they gave a gift to the church that we turned around and paid for that couple's medical care. We didn't even tell them about it. They just got a statement. They were ready to make that next payment. And it just said, zero. Paid in full. And it was credited to them. It was reckoned to them. It was taken away. Do you not know that the sum and substance of our faith is that in the cross, Jesus has taken away something that you and I cannot pay on our own? 
and all of the credit of all of the resources, of all of the power that He has, He puts into your account. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him because of his trust, because of his faith. And this last thing here, as righteousness. Most of the people I know that know the Christian story in America today, they stop with where I just stopped in that last story. You have a debt you can't pay. You owe something in your brokenness and life of sin. We are under something we cannot get out from underneath, and Jesus has come to take that from you. That, my friends, is true but incomplete. It is only part of the story. Many of you have heard me say it, but it bears repeating because I'm going to venture to guess that you don't remember everything that I say. That there's a difference between justice and mercy and grace. Imagine a cop pulls you over and you're speeding and he gives you a ticket. That's justice. You did it, you pay for it. Imagine you're speeding, the cop pulls you over and he gives you a warning. That's mercy. He lets you off this time. Imagine you're speeding, the cop pulls you over, and you roll down the window, and he hands you his donut. (laughs) That's grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. Are you tracking with me on that? It's not just that something's removed that needs to be taken away from you. Grace is given to you. In other words, God's righteousness is given to you. Tim Keller puts it this way. But in the gospel, we discover that Jesus has taken us off of death row and then has hung around our neck the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's grace. Not just that you were saved from something, but that you were saved for something. What were you saved for? James, the brother of Jesus, calls upon the same Old Testament quote in Genesis chapter 15 that Paul does here. And he adds something to the quote that I think gives us an incredible clarification. He says it like this. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. If you think that God in Jesus Christ has come just to let you off the hook, you do not understand the notion of grace. Yes, we've made a mess of things. 
Yes, our lives are full of unrighteousness and sin. We are not okay. We tried to go our own way. We try to rationalize and justify our existence. And all of these things that we try to do to rationalize and justify our existence, they don't work. You know it, I know it. We can try, but they never satisfy. The only thing that satisfies is to follow in the footsteps of your father and mine, Abraham, to put our trust and our confidence in God And when we trust and believe in God, a credit comes to us, a reconciliation. And His righteousness, His grace, becomes a gift to you and me. And that gift is a friendship. We don't deserve that. We can't earn that. And that's not just a God up in heaven saying, that's okay, whatever you did is fine. No, it's so much more. And so Andrew believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And Mary was called a friend of God, and it was credited to her as righteousness, and she was called a friend of God. And Richard believed God, and it was credited to him as to righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That's, that's the invitation. You can focus on your problems, or you can focus on the promise. And so let us pray. Father, we thank you for the power that is available to us, a power alone that can come from you even in the mess of the world that we have made. Lord, forgive us for trying to justify our existence in all of the wrong ways by what we do or what we avoid or how we look or who we're with. God, will you give a heavenly talking to to our inner press secretaries? Thank you, God, that you have given us powerful symbols to remind us of your unending love and faithfulness, the promise of circumcision that is made complete in our baptism, the promise of the stars in the night sky that you will be the father of of many. Help us to not just have an intellectual assent in you or to say that we trust, but to really for you to be the object of our faith, that we'll rely on it. Thank you, God, that you did not give us wages, but you gave us a gift that put a credit into our heavenly bank accounts that enables us to be able to move forward in freedom and a new life. But most of all, thank you that you not only rescued us from death row, but that you have hung that medal around our neck a medal that says that we can be your friend. God, the only thing that justifies my existence 
as what you have done. And to this we all say, Amen.